Good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 14? Now, if you're new with us at Calvary here, we are studying the book of 1 Samuel here on Sunday mornings. And in our last study, we saw how that the Philistines had come out to battle against Israel. We saw also how King Saul was paralyzed by his circumstances. He's sitting under a pomegranate tree, uh, doing nothing while the enemy is increasing in strength and in size. His soldiers were terrified. Many had deserted. They were hiding in caves and uh, in pits behind rocks. Some had even actually even joined the Philistine army. And uh, Saul just sat there, you know, kind of a useless excuse for a leader. Now, Jonathan, Saul's son, was not like that. He was a man of faith. He looked at the situation through the eyes of faith. And because he looked at the situation through the eyes of faith, believing in God's power, it led him to make kind of a bold proposal to his armor bearer. We kind of picked that up in verse 6. Then Jonathan said to, his young, to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. So Jonathan proposes a venture in faith. He says to his armor bearer, Look, let's step out and see if God... It's going to want to work. Who knows? Why just sit here doing nothing? Maybe the Lord wants to do a work. Maybe he wants to give victory to Israel. He doesn't need a whole army to do that. We learned later in the passage. God can give victory with just one or two guys if he wants to. So why don't we take a step in faith and see if God's in this? After they confirmed that God was in it, they quickly climbed up the bluff where the Philistines were kind of encamped on the mesa above. And they jumped into the camp of the Philistines and began to cut them down. About 20 guys in the space of a half acre. Well, Saul was in camp with his little army, those that were still with him, across the valley. And of course, they're looking in this confusion, it looks like, in the Philistine camp. Now, we read as God began to use Jonathan and his armor bearer, suddenly he strikes the Philistines with confusion. They begin to strike each other. He brings a great earthquake. Philistines are running everywhere, okay? And Saul and his men see that this vast number of the enemy is beginning to dwindle. He's like, what's going on? Take a roll, see who's missing. Sure enough, Jonathan and his armor bearer were missing. So Saul decides to join the battle. Now he's a little late, all right? God's already at work. God's spirit is already giving victory. The enemy's on the run. But as so often is the case, when the spirit is moving and the enemy is fleeing, some leader, like Saul, decides to impose some stupid rule that sounds spiritual, but it's just rooted in pride. So Saul decides he's going to make this oath, verse 24. And the men of Israel were distressed that day, for Saul had placed the people under an oath, saying, Cursed is the man who eats any food until evening, before I have taken vengeance on my enemies. Now, he should have just left it alone. God was working. God was giving victory. But no, Saul figures, you know, I'm going to make an oath, you know, and we'll finish this job and get the Philistines defeated and so on. Remember what um, Solomon said in Proverbs 29, verse 20? He said, do you see a man hasty in his words? <laughs> There's more hope for a fool than for him. It kind of summed up Saul's life. In fact, if we had to pick one verse from the New Testament that I think best sums up this story, 
it would probably be Galatians 3, verse 3, where Paul said to the Galatians, Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now going to be made perfect in the flesh? Of course, the Galatians had gotten into legalism. Some teachers had come to town saying, Look, you know, that's all well and fine that you believe in Jesus, but that only gets your foot in the door. You've got to then do all these works, get circumcised, keep the law of Moses, and that way you will finish the work God began. Paul says, are you crazy? God saved you through the work of his spirit. Now, are you going to try to make yourself more saved <laughs> or perfect your walk by legalism? That's what the Galatians were into. And that's what Saul just did. He imposed a legalistic restriction on the armies of Israel when the Holy Spirit was already giving them victory. Suddenly, you know, he comes up with this bright idea he's going to be real spiritual and impose this legalistic rule on them and help God give the full victory of what he was already starting to do. Look, those of you who have been coming to Calvary for a while know the history of Calvary Chapel. The history of Calvary Chapel is that God started a work back in the 60s that was a total work of God's Spirit. When Pastor Chuck pastored a church for 17 years with no more than 100 people, and all of a sudden he finds himself in the midst of some kind of a work of God that nobody knows what's going on, all they know is that young people are coming, and they're coming in droves. The hippies who were, you know, on drugs, who were given over to these communal situations where they're having sex and Drugs are flowing and so on. And all of a sudden, God begins to touch these kids. And they begin to come. And quickly, Calvary, they, they outgrew the facility they had, which wasn't a very big church. And so while they're building a new facility, they purchased a circus tent and began to fill with chairs. Every service, more people started coming. Every service, they were putting up more chairs. Finally, one Saturday night, as they you know got the, the tent, you know, wired up for an even bigger crowd and and chuck looks from the stage at a sea of folding chairs 1600 folding chairs and chuck's son chuck jr looked at his dad and says dad how long do you think it will take god to fill this place chuck's about 12 hours that next day the place was packed and after that service chuck looked at his son and says this was the total grace of god he knew it he knew it the total grace of God. There's no way I can take any credit for what God is doing here. It's a total work of God's grace. We have to understand this, guys. God doesn't need our help to finish the work he has started. Beware of falling into legalism. Listen to me. Beware of falling into legalism. It will halt the work of the Spirit in your life and turn God's victory into defeat. But it's dangerous. It's subtle. You know why? Because legalism sounds so spiritual. It kind of goes something like this. God has been really working in your life. You know, you're a young Christian. God's been blessing you with his grace. You are seeing one victory after the other in the areas of your life that had you bound the smoking, the drinking, whatever, drugs, whatever it might be. Here's the tendency. Here's what so often happens, especially with young believers. Wow, has God been blessing me? Wow, has he been working in my life? You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start reading my Bible even more. I'm going to start praying more, fasting more, going to church more. You say, well, what's wrong with that? It sounds spiritual to me. Look, there are all kinds of blessings and benefits that come when we read our Bibles more, pray more, or do any one of a number of spiritual devotions more if your motive is to draw close to God. 
If your motive is to kind of help God out finishing the work he's begun, that's when you fall into a pit. God has begun a work in your life through the power of his spirit. He wants you to give him the glory, not jump alongside of him and go, stand back, Lord, watch me help you. Look, Satan knows the quickest way to torpedo the victory that God is bringing into your life is to make you think you have to, listen, help God finish what he started. A couple of years ago, I was in California for our Calvary Pastors Conference, and one of our pastors who pastors out in, the, in California, his name is Dave. I know Dave very well. He's a very good guy. And his church is about, I don't know, 12, 13,000 people. Massive church. And one day, a professor at one of the Christian colleges uh, in the area asked Dave if he could meet him for lunch at the university, okay, at the Bible college there, to talk about the secret of the success that God was doing in Dave's church. Well, Dave happened to be reading a book at this time, some kind of a church growth book, where the author outlined a bunch of principles for making a church grow. And for some reason, Dave embraced those and thought, well, I'll share these with the professor. So they're standing in line in the cafeteria. They get their food, put it down on the table. And um, Dave is just about ready to share these principles from this book as to how God made his church so great, so big. And just before he starts to speak, the professor says, you know, hang on a second, Dave. I need to get something to drink. So while he went over to get some milk or some water or something, the Holy Spirit spoke to Dave. He said so clearly, it was incredible. The Holy Spirit said, if you take credit for what I have done in this church by giving principles from a book, I will remove my Holy Spirit from this church. It was pretty powerful. When the professor came back, he said, okay, Dave, what's the secret of your success? It is a total work of God's grace. Good answer. Good answer. Legalism, which is what Saul, King Saul, was guilty of imposing on his soldiers, is always rooted in pride. Oh, we, we don't think of it that way. We just think we're being real committed to the Lord. But legalism is always rooted in pride. Look at what Saul said in verse 24 again. He said, Cursed is the man who eats any food until evening before I have taken vengeance on my enemies. Whose battle was this? Was it God's or was it Saul's. All of a sudden, Saul is fighting, not for God's glory, but for his own. You know, we accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. He became our commanding officer. We were enlisted into his army to fight his battles. Listen, his battles, not ours. Sometimes we lose sight of that. Sometimes we lose sight of that. We forget that he's in charge of us. We're not in charge of him. And whenever we lose sight of that and begin to think, you know what, he's fighting on my team, my cause, or my battles, we will try to then enlist the Lord to fight for me against my enemies, whoever they are at that time. Could be my own spouse, okay? A lot of Christian wives not happy with their husbands. Lord, get him. Get him. You're with me, aren't you? You're on my side in this. He's, he's wrong. Get him, Lord. A lot of husbands do that to their wives. A lot of Christians say to the Lord, Lord, you know that brother or sister in church, they're not treating me right now. Lord, will you do something about that? Will you fight for me in this? Take my side, Lord. I'm right. We try to enlist God in our cause to fight on our side. This is something 
Joshua. Unknowingly, he didn't mean this, but Joshua tried to do the night before the Battle of Jericho. You remember this, right? God has just led his people into the Promised Land. The first enemy he brings them up against is the people of Jericho, which happened to be the strongest stronghold in Canaan. And the night before this crucial battle, and these were very strong enemies, had a very fortified city. Joshua was out taking a walk. You know how you do when you got something real heavy on your mind, a big thing the next day going on, whatever it might be. So he's out walking. You know, and if I imagine what was going on correctly, I think he's probably out walking with his head bowed, you know, just looking down at the ground, thinking, kicking rocks and stuff. All of a sudden he looks up and there's a stranger about maybe 25 feet in front of him with his sword drawn. Joshua does not recognize this soldier. And so it says in Joshua chapter 5, verse 13, It came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him. Again, he didn't know who this man was. He didn't recognize him as one of his soldiers. And so he asked him a simple question, a question about loyalty. Whose side was he on? He asked, are you for us? Or are you against us? That's a legitimate question, right? Are you for us or are you against us? And this stranger answered, no. But as the commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. If you notice, he didn't really answer the question, did he? The question was, are you for us, stranger, or are you against us? What does the stranger say? No. No. Now we know from the account, this was none other than the Lord Jesus Christ in a pre-incarnate appearance he had come as the commander of the lord's army to fight for joshua and israel against the people of jericho so you say well then if it was the lord why didn't he just say well when joshua said are you for us or against us? why do you say well for you of course i'm for you joshua and israel instead he brushes the question aside by answering no now look we all know that jesus was for joshua and israel in their battle against jericho even as the Lord is for us in our battles. Didn't Paul say this in Romans 8.31? Since God is for us, who can be against us? So then, if the Lord is always for his people, why didn't the Lord Jesus simply answer the question directly? Why did he seem to sidestep it? Listen, the Lord didn't answer the question because the question was fundamentally flawed. You see, Joshua was asking it from a position of authority as a commanding officer, asking the Lord of glory, look, are you for us or against us? Because if you're for us, get in line behind me. That wasn't his place to say that to Jesus. Now, he finally figured out who it was, and he got behind the Lord. Right thing to do. But initially, he tries to enlist the Lord in his cause, to fight in his battle. Look, guys, the battle belongs to who? the Lord. We are to line up behind him. We are his soldiers. He is our commanding officer. And listen to me. When it comes to God's loyalty toward us, that is never, ever in question. The real issue is not whether or not he is for or against us. The real issue is, are we for or against him? You say, what are you talking about? I'm always for the Lord. Really? Sometimes we say we're for the Lord. But what we really mean is, no, I want God to be for me. 
And there's a lot of Christians who have turned against the Lord because He has not led their lives the way they have wanted Him to. They have not done what they have wanted Him to do in their lives, and so they're not really following Him. They want Him to follow after them, to bless what they want to do, to give them all the things that they want in life, things that often go directly against what He may want for our lives. That's why He is quiet so often. That's why he doesn't answer our prayers so many times. Because we're praying amiss. We want to consume it upon our own lust, James says. And that's why the Lord doesn't answer us. The issue is not, Lord, are you for me? I mean, so often we make our little plans and we plan out our little strategies, don't we? And then we pray. Just like Saul did, by the way. He prayed after the fact. But we pray. Now, Lord, you see what's going on here. Now, I need you to fight for me, okay? Are you on my side? I need you on my team, Lord. Now, come on, get behind me. Let's go do this together. And what I'm actually planning goes against what God wants for my life. And so often when the Lord doesn't respond, doesn't help, doesn't give the person what they want, they turn against him because they're not really for him. They want him to be for them. The real issue, guys, is who is leading who? Who is leading who? Who is subservient to whom? Who is in charge? Is it us or the Lord? Of course, we know it's Jesus. We know that in theory, but not always in practice. Look, he is the commanding officer. He's the Lord of glory. He doesn't follow behind us blessing what we want to do and where we want to go and how we want to live our lives. When we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, our life as we have known it and lived it, guys, is now over. And we have become the slaves of Christ. Again, Jesus doesn't come alongside you and me to be our servant. To help us fulfill our dreams, bless our desires. He takes over. He takes over. He doesn't want you to add him to your life. He wants to become your life. A lot of Christians don't seem to understand that today. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 6 to a group of would-be disciples? He said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet don't do the things that I tell you? He said, you know, I'm not really your Lord if you're not following me. If you're not obeying where I'm leading, if you're not going where I'm going, if you're not fighting my battles the way I want them fought against the enemy, then you know what? You may call me Lord, but I'm really not your Lord. Because a Lord is somebody who has control over your life. He's in control. Jesus Christ is our Lord if we submit our lives to him to lead us, to guide us, etc. Now, as we see in our text this morning, King Saul's pride got the best of him. And he made a foolish oath. And it brought with it some unintended consequences. First of all, it weakened his troops. Verse 25. Now all the people of the land came to a forest, and there was honey on the ground. And when the people had come into the woods, there was the honey dripping. But no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. Therefore he stretched out the end of his rod, his staff, that was in his hand, and dipped it in the honeycomb. And he put his hand to his mouth, and his countenance brightened. Instant surge of energy. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed is the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. They were weak. But Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. Look now how my countenance is brightened because I tasted a little of this honey. 
Look, no military commander worth his salt would deprive his troops of food while they were fighting the enemy. This goes for a pastor who was leading his people in battle against the devil and his demons. Guys, I think that honey here represents the word of God. Remember what the psalmist said in Psalm 119, 103? How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. The sad reality is that too many pastors have stopped teaching God's word to their people. Oh, they haven't forbidden them like Saul did for them to eat anything. But it's almost like that. I mean, I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church. Centuries ago, the Catholic Church forbid anyone from reading the Bible. Those that tried to translate it into the common tongue were, were, were burned at the stake by the church. We've gotten past that. It's just that a lot of pastors look so down on the Bible as being passe and old news. Like it hasn't got the power to do anything. In a sense, they're telling their people, don't bother reading it. And what are they doing in its place? Well, they're giving their church, their people, the wisdom of men. The wisdom in the words of men in the form of pop psychology, other high-sounding philosophies, the very thing Paul warned us against in Colossians 2, verses 8 to 10. Don't let anybody cheat you with high-sounding words and great-sounding philosophies, which, which look like they have wisdom attached to them, but they're just of the world. You know, you're people of God. You feed on the Word of God. Your relationship with Jesus is all you need to have everything you need to win this war for Him. Guys, only God's Word has the power to transform a life and give victory over the enemy. But again, sadly, far too many churches have rejected this idea today as foolish, archaic, and naive choosing rather to feed their people all kinds of other things. A big one today is mysticism in the form of contemplative prayer or spiritual formation, which is nothing more than Christianized transcendental meditation. We see other churches that are focused primarily on materialism through the word of faith teaching, how you can you know, claim your Cadillacs and your big houses, by knowing verbal formulas and speaking it out and, and positively confessing your wealth and so on. Mysticism, materialism. Environmentalism is a big one. Some churches are consumed with the environment. Everything, churches are going green, okay? As if God commanded us to save the planet when he said, save the people on the planet. And we see many churches today involved with social justice, which is just Christianized socialism. And that's just to name a few of the themes that dominate many pulpits across our country today. No wonder the church is weak and ineffective today, much like Saul's soldiers were weak when they couldn't eat. But Saul's foolish oath not only weakened his soldiers, it also hindered his troops from gaining a complete victory. Again, verse 29, Jonathan says, Look how my countenance is brightened, because I tasted a little of this honey. Verse 30, how much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies, which they found. For now, would there not have been a much greater slaughter among the Philistines? Now look, we're not looking to slaughter anybody, okay? Uh, we're looking to destroy principalities and powers and drive them from people's lives. But I'm sorry to say that for the most part, the church isn't having, isn't having complete victory over the world. It's compromising with the world. Of course, one example is how many churches have accepted gay marriage. I've heard different people tell me that as they're driving around, they're seeing uh, a good number of churches that have the rainbow flag out in front, on the marquee. All are welcomed. In their minds, this is how you reach the world. 
You compromise what God has said, and you partner with the world. You embrace the world's sin and make them feel like it's okay. God loves you. Look, if you really love sinners, we should want to tell them the truth, not make them feel like they can have their sin and still have God. It's not going to happen. Look, revival always happens. When church leaders preach the whole counsel of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, And if they don't, as we're seeing today, well, the church will continue to be defeated and society will continue to decline. This morning before I came here, I checked the news and there was a devotional on the news source that I I read online and it was about Charles Finney. Now, Charles Finney was a revivalist. He was one of the key members of the First Great Awakening. took place back in the uh, early 1700s. He was a revivalist. Listen to what he said about the condition of a nation, and how it, is de- how it will decline if the teaching of the word is not done faithfully. Finney said, and I quote, if, if immorality prevails in the land, the fault is ours in a great degree. If there is a decay of conscience, the pulpit is responsible for it. If the press, public press lacks moral discrimination, the pulpit is responsible for it. If the church is degenerate and worldly, the pulpit is responsible for it. If the world loses its interest in religion, the pulpit is responsible for it. If Satan rules in our halls of legislation, the pulpit is responsible for it. If our politics become so corrupt that the very foundations of our government government are ready to fall away, the pulpit is responsible for it. Let us not ignore this fact, dear brethren, but let us lay it to our heart and be thoroughly awake to our responsibility in respect to the morals of this nation, end quote. And the whole article went on to say the only way we are going to be the moral conscience of this country is if pastors from pulpits preach the whole counsel of God in the power of the Holy Spirit. Not, you know, placating people by telling them what they want to hear, which is exactly what we're seeing in these last days. Look, when Christians are fed a steady diet of God's word, the result is a strong church. And a strong church will go into the world and take territory away from the devil for the glory of God. A weak church can't do that. A watered-down church can't do that. A sick church can't do it. And that's what we're getting to lastly here. Saul's foolish oath had another unintended consequence. It created in his soldiers an abnormal craving for food. When God's people are starving spiritually because they're not being fed the word of God, they will begin to devour foods that are forbidden and defiled. Look at verse 31. Now they had driven back the Philistines that day from Michmash to Agilon, so the people were very faint. And the people rushed on the spoil and took sheep, oxen, and calves and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. Now, when the sun set a new day began. The Jews were on a lunar calendar. So when the sun set, the new day began. And this new day now, having begun, they were no longer under or bound by Saul's curse. Look at verse 24 again. He said, Cursed is the man who eats any food until what? Evening. Because that would be the end of the day. What he was saying is, Cursed is the man who eats any food all day today. Now, of course, when the sun went down, the people were so hungry, they began to take the animals, kill them right there on the ground. I would imagine they started barbecuing them, you know. Uh, I don't think they were eating them raw. 
But I know what they were doing is they, they had not bled the animals. They were cooking and eating the animals with the blood. Now, God had forbidden that in his law. The life is in the blood, God said. I'm the giver of life. You are not to eat the blood with the animal. It's supposed to be killed and bled properly. That's the idea behind kosher. Kosher meat is an animal that's been killed in the proper way and bled thoroughly. And then a rabbi comes in and blesses the meat. And that's kosher. Because Orthodox Jews will not eat anything that hasn't been bled properly. But here we see back then God's people so driven by hunger because you had a goofball king who thought he was being spiritual. Don't eat anything today until I avenge myself on my enemies. Saul's stupid oath that they began to eat defiled food. Just like today. Just like today. If you go into any Christian bookstore today, you will find a lot of defiled spiritual food, quote-unquote, that Christians are devouring like crazy. Before I came here this morning, I, dev I devoured. I googled. <laughs> I don't know, maybe I'm hungry. I don't know. <laughs> I googled top-selling Christian books. You know what the first one was? Jesus Calling by Sarah Young. Now, if you weren't here last week or a week before, we had Warren Smith come out, who was a ex-New Ager, Christian apologist, author, who wrote a book to counter that book called Another Jesus Calling. Sarah Young's book has been out for 10 years. It sold, listen, 12 million copies. Christians are devouring it like crazy because they don't know any better. They're not being taught. There's no discernment. Oh, but wait a minute. You're putting down that book. It blessed me. It really helped me get through a rough patch. Look, you think the devil's going to deceive you with all evil things? Bad things, evil, hurtful things? He's going to mix in a lot of positive stuff, a lot of devotional thoughts that are going to uplift you on that day. But if you study carefully the Jesus of Jesus calling, and here's the deal. Sarah Young was greatly influenced by a couple of gals who wrote a book in the 1930s called God Calling. And what they did was they just sat together in silence with a pad of paper and a pencil. And they said, okay, God, start talking. Now, I don't know if they were really believers, but the God who talked to them was not the God of the Bible. I challenge you to, well, I don't want you to read the book. Read a review of the book. And you will find this God saying all kinds of things that were unscriptural, things God would never say. Well, Sarah was blessed by that book, and she decided if God could do it for them, he could do it for me. So she took a piece of paper and a pencil and sat and said, okay, God, you know, Jesus, start talking to me. And a spirit that she believed was Jesus began to give her all kinds of dictation. In fact, it's called auto-dictation or spiritual dictation. You just open your mind up to the spirit realm and let the spirits begin to speak to you. She believed Jesus was talking to her. And I've read Warren's book, Another Jesus Calling, where he cites passage after passage and shows how it's unscriptural. Jesus would never say something like this, or it goes against what God has already said. The Jesus of Jesus Calling is not our Jesus. Yet Christians are devouring that book like crazy. Why? Because they're not being fed good, wholesome food from God's Word. Well, of course, that book was followed by other books, many of them from the Positive Confession Movement, How to Be Rich, How to Speak Your Wealth, Your Success, or those from the Positive Mental Attitude Group, you know, the people like the Joel Osteens and all that. It's not what they say is wrong, it's what they don't say. 
It's what they leave out. It's all positive, warm and fuzzy stuff. They never talk about judgment or hell or sin or whatever. Then another one was John Edwards' book, Practical Praying. John Edwards is a medium. And he, he has these seances and these sessions where he will uh, help people to speak to dead loved ones. You know who was in that book? Roma Downey. You know, touched by an angel. Her and her husband worked on that uh, Bible series and so on. She's a Catholic New Ager. She prays the rosary every day. Uh, John included her in his book. Guys, we are living in very deceptive times. You should have seen the reviews. After first service, a gal came up, showed me the Amazon reviews on that particular book. They were glowing. All sorts of Christians who they think they're Christians. I don't know if they all are. So, oh, you have to read the book. It's wonderful. They teach you how to pray the rosary and all those kind of neat things and prayer. And, you know, are you kidding? There's so many things that are going on today, guys. Um, I don't even have time to get into all of them. The book that's been a bestseller for many years, Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster. He says the most important chapter in the book is the one that teaches you how to, visual, how to uh, contact the Lord through spiritual formation, where you basically empty your mind of all thought by using a mantra or a, or a Christian phrase. I mean, yeah, the occult, they, they've done this for many centuries. But see, we're using Jesus or saying Abba. See, we're, we've Christianized it by, by repeating Christian mantras. You kidding me? In the Bible, we see meditation all over the place. God told Joshua, meditate on my word day and night. Then you will have strength to have victory and good success. But when the Bible uses the word meditation, it simply is a word that means to chew the cud. It's a word that means to chew on God's word. Think on it. Extract from it every blessing God has put there for you to learn from. It's not Eastern meditation, which is to get somewhere and say a word over and over again or a phrase like a mantra until you empty your mind of all thought and you come into this uh, place called the silence where you're now connected to the spirit realm and they're teaching Christians this is a wonderful new prayer technique even though it's occultic I mean you have all kinds of things being promoted today that are well as John said beloved don't believe every spirit but test the spirits to see whether they are of God Many false prophets have gone out into the world. And Paul said, the Spirit of God expressly says, in the last days, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and embrace doctrines of demons. We're seeing it today in the Church of Jesus Christ. And once again, guys, I blame pastors for not feeding their people faithfully on God's Word, which has made them so hungry for spiritual truth, they're devouring defiled spiritual food, which is poisoning them with last day's deceptions. Look, your Bible should be your main source of spiritual food. But after you read your Bible, it's not wrong to supplement it with other good Christian books. You want to read some good books that will bless your walk with God? How about books by A.W. Tozer? Andrew Murray, Alan Redpath, Leonard Ravenhill, Amy Carmichael, Elizabeth Elliot, just to name a few. I challenge you to go to your local Christian bookstore, if you can still find one, mine closed down, and go into their bargain bin. It's usually a garbage can that they've lined with uh, plastic and they've thrown all the books in there that nobody wants. Fish through there, they're usually a couple bucks. 
you'll find Christian classics, books that nobody else wants. They want the hottest sellers now to teach them how they can be rich or how they can contact God like nobody else, how they can have experiences with the Holy Spirit, and so on. This is what we're seeing the church feeding on today. Look, guys, we're done. When we're talking about victory over the devil, God gives the victory. He doesn't need our help. I'm not saying we do nothing. I'm not saying we don't go to church. We don't read our Bibles. I'm just saying God doesn't need our help to give us the victory. Here's what we need to do. We need to trust in the power of the Holy Spirit every day because it's his power that gets us victory over the devil. Secondly, you need to be in prayer every day to get your marching orders from the Lord. Lord, is there anybody that you want me to talk to? Is there anybody you're going to bring across my path today? Make me sensitive to that so I can be ready to share with them if that's what you're going to do. Read your Bible. Feed on your Bible daily and obey it faithfully. Then and only then will you be a good soldier of Jesus Christ fit for the Master's use. And when he begins to use you, because guess what? We're in the last days. The work is great. The laborers are few. We need as many soldiers as we can get to enter into the battle with us. And when God begins to use you to fight his battles, and he gives you victory over the devil in whatever that means in your life, you make sure you give him the glory. Don't you dare take credit for what he's done. He'll put you on a shelf so fast and turn to somebody else to use. And when somebody asks you what is going on in your life, you're like a dynamo. I mean, you're like on fire. What is happening? What has caused you to get this way? You will say, all glory belongs to God. Great things he has done. I take no credit. I just said, Lord, here am I. Use me. I want to be used to, to tear down the strongholds of the devil in people's lives that I love and know. Will you use me? And God has begun to put his spirit upon me. I just took a venture in faith, like Jonathan, and God began to give victory. And when he does, don't try to add to it. Don't try to say, well, God, that's great. Let me help you out. No. Just say, to God be the glory, great things he has done. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you, Lord, that it's so subtle, and we're so prone to it. But when you are moving in a, our life or in, in our church, so often we're prone to want to run over there and try to help you out. And that's the quickest way to squash what the Spirit is doing. Just give us grace to be open, to be sensitive to the Spirit's leading, that we can be where you're working, not to take credit for it, but, Lord, simply to be an instrument that you might use to bring it about. Lord, we want to be used in these last days. We want to take ventures in faith. We want to see the devil beaten back and, and put to flight. Give us grace, Lord, that we might be a church that is on fire, a church that is, Lord, walking in the power of your Spirit. Lord, we need revival. Give us revival in this church, Lord. No, we're not dead like some churches, but we're not as alive as we want to be. Lord, Revive us. Fill us with your spirit. Give us an excitement to go out into this world and be a light. Father, we thank you. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.